Good evening and welcome to The Source. I'm Caitlin Collins. All eyes tonight are on Gaza, where there has been a significant Israeli military escalation tonight, the largest that we have seen since the start of this war almost exactly three weeks ago. Along with a relentless air bombardment, Israel says it's expanding its ground operation in Gaza, but won't yet precisely say whether or not this is the start of that highly anticipated full-scale ground offensive. Axios journalist Barack Ravid notes tonight that it is much more intensive than what we have seen in recent days with those minor incursions going into Gaza with then Israeli forces leaving. Right now, you are looking at video from the IDF of these targeted raids that are conducted, being conducted tonight. Israeli forces say that hundreds of thousands of soldiers have amassed on the border, in the air, on the ground, and in the sea. Of course, the hostages are still in Gaza. They are still at the center of this. We are hearing from U.S. officials who say that negotiations are going to continue, but there are major questions of how the action that we are seeing on the ground play out right now complicates that. Of course, 229 people still remain in captivity by Hamas tonight. I want to get right to CNN's Anderson Cooper, who is live in Tel Aviv. Anderson, obviously, we heard from Israel Defense Forces saying that it's expanding its ground operation tonight. How does that look different? How does it sound different from where you are than what we've been seeing over the last three weeks? Uh, it, it certainly, I mean, the, the level of bombardment uh, has increased significantly uh, for many hours now already. Uh, even earlier today, this afternoon, uh, first of all, the number of rocket attacks on Tel Aviv itself uh, seemed to uh, there be an uptick. There were a number of air raid sirens in Tel Aviv, which has not occurred over the last several days. Uh, but certainly from all our folks, Nick Robertson, uh, Jeremy Diamond on the border, uh, we've been hearing and seeing uh, significant uh, artillery, significant uh, munitions dropped uh, in in Gaza. Even here in Tel Aviv, you can you can hear uh, some large detonations all the way in Gaza from uh, from Tel Aviv. Uh, it's just a sign of of the massive amount of ordnance that's uh, being put into place. Uh, and dropped in into Gaza, what Israel says is targeting specific uh, Hamas command and control centers, uh, particular leaders from uh, from Hamas. We don't know the level of troops on the ground, uh, exactly locations, obviously, and whether they intend to stay there or, or come back across the border. We did see about two nights ago, uh, the IDF put out a video of a limited very limited incursion of some bulldozers and tanks going across the border, literally leveling out berms uh, to make it easier for other tanks in the future uh, to cross uh, to cross over into Gaza. Also, according to the IDF, taking out any reconnaissance uh, locations or uh, or IEDs or explosive devices that may have been around in that area. And there have been a number of sort of softening operations, leveling the ground operations like that in the, the previous days, according to the IEF, IDF. But this certainly seems to be a new phase. Maybe. Yeah, and of course, we're seeing how it's affecting Gaza already. I mean, comms there tonight have been severely disrupted. CNN has been able to make some limited contact with people who are still inside the Gaza Strip. But I mean, all of this just makes it difficult to know what the other side of this looks like, what it looks like in Gaza tonight, Anderson. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. Obviously, it's not a surprise that uh, that Israel would try to knock out communications in in Gaza. Um, you know, given they want to do everything they can to maximize their advantage, to not have Hamas operatives being able to communicate easily with with one another, they want an element of surprise as much as that is possible. Given the fact that Hamas has spent, according to Hamas, two years preparing 
uh, for the terror attacks, for the slaughter that took place on October 7th, which also means they've been preparing for two years for the inevitable uh, Israeli response, uh, which uh, they wouldn't know exactly what it would be, but they could certainly anticipate it would involve a ground operation given the, the scale and the scope of, the, of the, the massacre, the slaughter that took place and the brutality of it. So uh, it is a very dangerous situation, obviously, for civilians on the ground in, uh, in Gaza City, uh, all throughout the Gaza Strip, and obviously for Israeli forces heading into a battlefield, an urban combat battlefield, um, that the, the forces they are going to be opposing is not only embedded within a civilian population uh, and also has a network of underground tunnels and more than 200 hostages, but it also has had a significant amount of time to think and prepare for this inevitable ground operation. Yeah. Anderson Cooper in Israel, thank you. For a perspective now, I want to bring in CNN's military analyst and retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. Colonel, obviously, Gaza is a small, densely populated place. It's just about twice the size of Washington, D.C. Where exactly are we seeing this, this new activity tonight, and how close do we, do we think that is to where we believe this underground Hamas tunnel network is? Yeah, Caitlin, good evening. The main area that the, the Israelis seem to be going for is the northern part right here of Gaza. So this is all of Israel. This is the West Bank, and this is Gaza. So we expect the Israelis to have their forces basically in this area around the northern and central part of Gaza. There are also reports that they may there may be some activity in the southern part of the border area between Israel and Gaza. So all of these areas, expect them to be quite active. Now, as far as the tunnels are concerned, uh, well, first of all, let's take a look at the damage right here. This is the kind of damage uh, that we have as of the 22nd of October. All of this area right here has been uh, hit by by the Israelis all through here. You see the different uh, impact points that you have here, also in this area and in this area. These are all the different areas that have uh, all been impacted by the kinds of uh, airstrikes that you see here. And then as far as the tunnels go, they are at a minimum described like this about, you know, could be up to 300 miles of these tunnels, but they're all in this area right in mm -hmm. here, particularly in the north and in the uh, upper central part. And then there's some also here in the south. So, Caitlin, these are areas in which we can expect to, to find command and control nodes for Hamas, hostages, and also resupply efforts, plus the rockets uh, that uh, Hamas has stored and fires against Israel as often as they can. And Colonel, given your experience in the Air Force, when we are trying to figure out what exactly Israel is doing here, when do we know that the air campaign is done and that the ground operation is in full effect, or, or do those things just overlap now going forward? Well, they don't necessarily overlap. So one of the things that you can do is you can take a look at uh, areas that uh, are being targeted. So this is a before picture of a, a place called Isbat Beit Hanun in Gaza. And you see a fairly extensively populated area right here, uh, intact buildings, uh, some high rises up here and over this way. Now, that's the before picture. The after picture looks like this. This is October 21. All of the areas right in here all completely destroyed, obliterated. Uh, you have some damage in this area as well. Uh, so all of these different areas, 
are impacted in that way. And that is one aspect of this. So you, what you do is you do what's known as a battle damage assessment. Here's another place uh, that had a similar thing. This is Western Atatra uh, in Gaza, a very uh, agricultural area right over here, everything intact over here. Again, this was taken on May 10th. Mm -hmm. uh, after October 21st, all of this completely gone right in through here. And in, in those areas that are standing, you can tell that the buildings are basically uninhabitable. Yeah. And that's the big, big idea here. Once this is done, then that means that the other campaigns can start moving forward. Yeah, I mean, the before pictures and the after pictures are just remarkable. Colonel Layton, thank you for breaking all that down for us. Also here tonight to get perspective on what's happening on the ground, a member of Israel's Knesset and Israel's former ambassador, to the United Nations, Danny Danone. Ambassador, thank you for joining us back here. Can you give us some insight into what is going on now? Is this that anticipated ground invasion? Caitlin, we say that we will find them and we will hunt them down. That's exactly what we are doing now. And we expanded the ground operation uh, tonight, but we are still continuing to use the Air Force, the Navy, and we will not uh, sit idly by. We have to remember we still have 229 hostages, including 30 babies. We haven't forgotten the, the massacre. We haven't forgotten the, the rapes, the brutality, uh, burning kids alive. So yes, we are now coming after Hamas. We will use the force of the IDF. We still encourage the civilian population in northern Gaza to move to the south. They can still do that. There is an open corridor for them to move to the south. And we will do whatever is necessary how long it will take us to find the terrorists and to eliminate them. So if you're saying that there's still time for civilians to leave northern Gaza, that seems to indicate that this is not the full ground invasion. Can you clarify? Uh, no, I cannot. I cannot go into specifics, but uh, I, I'm sending a message to the people in, in uh, northern Gaza today. They can still leave the homes. About 80% already did it. And we encourage the rest to live because they should not be human shields for the Hamas terrorists. Uh, and we, it will be Ambassador a war zone Dunone, in uh, northern Gaza. Can, can I get you to stand by just for one moment? This is a really important conversation. I do want to get back to this, but we have some breaking news that has just happened here in the U.S. Of course, we've been following closely what is happening in Maine. CNN's Omar Jimenez has been there covering this story as this manhunt has been underway for this suspect over 48 hours now. Omar, what have you learned? Yeah, Caitlin, over 48 hours in this manhunt and multiple sources are now telling CNN this suspect has been found dead in the woods in the town over from where I am in Lewiston, which is where both of these mass shootings took place again over 48 hours ago at this point. As we understand from sources, he was found dead due to a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He was found in the woods, as, uh, as I mentioned, near Lisbon, Maine, which is the town over from here in Lewiston. They've been searching for him since the shootings took place. And while, while obviously this is the breaking news that's happening right now, there were indications or fears that he may have been found dead because of a note that was found uh, previously by law enforcement indicating that he did not plan to be alive when that note was found. And clearly, this seems to be playing out now, according to these sources. To give you an idea of what the past few days have been like here, it has created a sense of fear, at the very least unease, for the people here in this community, not knowing where this person was as they went to bed at night, as they locked their doors 
twice in some cases, as they barricaded their doors, as some posted on social media, again, unsure of what this person could be capable of. Now, earlier today, we got more details from police on how this attack unfolded first at a bowling alley not too far from where I am right now, and then minutes later came here to this location, to the restaurant behind me, and continued to open fire. At least 18 people were killed, 18 members of this community, and so many others are now trying to figure out how to put the pieces of their lives back together based on the actions of what police say was this man 40-year-old Robert Card, who again has now been found dead, according to multiple law enforcement sources, after a more than 48-hour search. A press conference from state police and other law enforcement is scheduled for uh, just about 50 minutes from now, where they will likely make that announcement officially, but also likely take us through some of the steps that led them to finding this particular body. I should also say that they were looking by, by the water, by air, by ground, and where this body found, was found, the Lisbon area, while we don't know the exact specific location in the woods, that has been a lot of the primary focus of where investigators have been searching. They were combing through the woods. They were looking along the river. They even told us earlier today what they would be doing, even sending divers into the river to potentially look for evidence. And we're not sure exactly what part of that strategy made them get to this final hurdle, but this is a sigh of relief for so many people in this community, again, who were living uh, in some cases in fear about where this person was. Yeah, so many areas still locked down. Omar, breaking news there that the suspected shooter in Maine has been found dead. Thank you for that. Omar, we'll get back to you in a moment. For more on this, I want to bring in CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, who's been covering this. John, I mean, what have you been learning from your sources about how they found him, what this note apparently said? Well, the note was uh, basically uh, a list of uh, account numbers, uh, things to take care of. It was probably meant for his son um, in the event of his death as to how to handle affairs, uh, though it wasn't explicitly a suicide note leaving it in a conspicuous place was an indicator that he wanted to um, put affairs in order. Um, now, tonight, uh, a search in an area discovers Robert Card that of an apparent, only the medical examiner can make that determination, self-inflicted gunshot wound. Um, I am told this is a wooded area near a recycling center. Why is that significant? because in the order of events in his life, uh, there was the mental health crisis he had in the National Guard that resulted in him being hospitalized uh, under uh, psychiatric observation. There was the loss of his job at that recycling center, and then the breakup with uh, a woman he had been involved with, and those things had happened in fairly rapid succession. So the symbolism of going back to places where he used to go with his girlfriend and opening fire on the people there, uh, the symbolism of going back to the place where he had been fired um, to that area and killing himself so he would be found nearby there um, may speak to a lot of the issues that were driving him. Do we know anything else about how they actually found him? Because, I mean, the amount of resources behind this search effort was extensive. We, we, we don't know. Uh, we'll know at 10 o'clock. But I think we can project that, uh, A, they've been searching wooded areas around there, almost kind of going through a grid. Which is so difficult this time and of year. A very challenging. But also, um, 
looking in areas that would be significant to him. And the recycling center, a place where he had worked and then had been discharged from, uh, would be significant to him. So that, um, that is, uh, there's one other thing that's, that's notable, which is, and we learned this today um, in our reporting on the story, which is he bought the gun, not just an AR-15 uh, rifle, but an AR-10, a high-powered rifle that uses a sniper's bullet. Um, it's used for long-distance shots and hunting big game on or about January 6th. January 16th, the Army calls the New York State Police, the National Guard calls the State Police and says he's out of control, and they take him to the hospital, and then they refer him for treatment. Um, and then those two things, buying the gun and essentially being put into a psychiatric ward for observation for a period of time, um, are in very close proximity. What we're trying to ask is, did authorities from the National Guard ever pass that on to the National Guard in Maine, where he ha had access to weapons, received weapons training, um, to uh, people in, in Maine, law enforcement authorities, where he was a lawful possessor of many weapons, but clearly a person in crisis. Um, and part of the struggle that they have had in identifying victims who were found at the two murder scenes uh, were that using this kind of weapon and that 308 round, this particularly large bullet, um, made it hard to identify people because a number of them um, were victims of what appeared to be targeted headshots. So taking all that together. That's so um, hard to hear. Very difficult and, and even speaks more to the type of weapon he bought, the type of round it carried, and then doing close range shooting of people from the very community that he has been with um, for most of his life. So the idea that he has been discovered, um, that he is a different leg of this tragedy, and that people can get back to trying to rebuild their lives and communities, as Omar said, um, that starts now. And just to bring everyone up to speed, if they're just tuning in, we were just on the ground in Israel. Now we were talking about what happened in Maine. They have found the suspected shooter there dead in the woods, an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. That gun that you're referencing, the one that he bought about 10 days before he had that episode, is that the one that they found in the vehicle or was it with him on his person? So that's an unusual gun. Um, the one they found in the vehicle is the same uh, make. It's by the Ruger company. It's the same caliber. It's that 308. Um, so they are waiting to process that through first DNA, then fingerprints, and then the ballistics match, which will tell them for sure. Um, but clearly he had another weapon, which he used to kill himself. The day he bought that gun, Caitlin, uh, he bought a second gun, a Beretta 92F, a little bit of symbolism there too. It's been the official gun of the U.S. Armed Forces. It's the gun he was trained on um, as part of the military. And it may be, we don't know, but it may be the gun that he took as the second part of that set um, after he took so many lives with the first one um, to take his own life with the second. And if we could just pull up the map again uh, of this area, I mean, obviously there was a distance between the bowling alley and the restaurant that he went to. How far do we believe, we don't know the precise location, but how far do we believe he is from, from where they found his body? From how the shooting from the, scenes from, from the where they found his body? The uh, these are all in four to seven mile drives, depending on which point you're starting from. But um, Lewiston is a town of 44,000 people or something in that area. 
and it is surrounded by smaller towns, but they're all connected um, and close to each other. And I know we've got a press conference coming up with officials where we expect them to confirm this reporting that you have. John Miller, I want you to stand by because we do have more on this breaking news in just a moment. We had the authorities are telling us, sources are telling CNN they have found the suspected shooter in Maine dead of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. We'll get much more on this at the top of the hour from authorities as they are going to hold that press conference. We'll be back here in just a moment with more reporting on the scene. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Back here with breaking news tonight, as we have learned, according to multiple sources, that the suspect in the Lewiston, Maine mass shootings has been found dead from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Robert Card was found in an area, we are told, near the recycling center from which he was recently fired. That's according to a law enforcement source to CNN's John Miller. We are waiting for a news conference from officials in Maine. That is coming up in this hour Back now with CNN's Omar Jimenez and John Miller. Omar, let me start with you on the ground in Maine. As we are learning these details, and we don't know the precise location of where he was found, but how far is it from where, I mean, these terrified residents have been sheltering inside with their doors locked, their businesses closed, waiting for, for this news? Exactly. This is what they've been waiting for for more than 48 hours, what has become a third night of the suspect on the run. The suspect that we now know from multiple law enforcement sources is dead. Now, to give you an idea of the geography that we're looking at here, so I am outside the Barn Grill, which is the second location uh, where the mass shootings were happening on Wednesday night. Just about 10 minutes from where I am is where the bowling alley is. That was where the mass shootings began that night. So we went from there, 6.56 p.m. was when the first 911 calls went out, and then he made his way down to this location. 7.08 p.m. was when those calls came out from this location. And then where his body was found, as we understand uh, from sources, the town over from here, just about a 10-minute drive as well. And it is also in that town was where his vehicle uh, was abandoned as well. So all of this was happening actually in a pretty small areas geographically when you consider the entire state and when you consider the range of where people thought he may have been, especially after the court over the course of two and a half days, looking, uh, of course, people uh, along the border trying to make sure that he's not up there, the Coast Guard involved as well. So everybody is, of course, covering their bases. But in the end, it does seem that he didn't get that far. Uh, again, just about 10 minutes from here is where uh, that body was found, as we understand from sources. To give people an idea of the manpower that was on the ground over the course of today, well, one, police said they'd gotten more than 530 tips in from the public. So people were obviously concerned mm -hmm. and maybe even more so on edge than they normally would be, calling in things that they likely wouldn't have thought twice about beforehand. So that's one dynamic going on. Then you have people, uh, law enforcement, moving methodically through the woods on the ground. We heard from police, state police earlier today that they were going to not just 
look on the water, but literally in the water, sending people in, decreasing the flow of the water, working with the dam companies to make it easier for them to get in the water to help in these, in these search actions. And then also from the air as well that we understood, one, to see what they could see from the air in some of the water areas, but also to assist in general surveillance as well. So this was a multifaceted approach that was happening, not just at the local level, but at the state and the federal level as well, trying to find where this person was, obviously understanding the urgency that many in the community here were pushing them toward. And one of our uh, colleagues earlier today said it felt like law enforcement felt the pressure when they came out and made their press conference earlier today. Whether that's true or not, they did what they were supposed to do here and found this suspect a sigh of relief for many here in this community. Yeah, certainly. And Omar, we'll wait to hear from those authorities when they come out shortly in just a moment. We'll check back in with you. Back with me now is John Miller, who broke this news that this suspect was found. 48 hours is a long time. I mean, it was Wednesday night that we were talking on this program about the shooting as they were first looking for this suspect. What's our indication of where he went from Wednesday night, what he's been doing until when they found him? Has he been in this place the whole time? Do they have any indication? That is a blank page because since the shooting, there has not been one single confirmed sighting, not by a police officer, not by a witness who said, I know him, that was him, you know, we spoke, I saw him, he came to my house, nothing like that. And I say that because, as you know, we recently went through the hunt for Daniel Cavalcante in Pennsylvania, escaped from jail, uh, managed to pick up a rifle, was looking to carjack a car, um, and we had multiple sightings of him. Each day he was being spotted somewhere. This was nothing like that. What it suggests, and this is all preliminary because we're literally working with this information in real time, is that he may have gone from the shooting scenes to where he abandoned the car um, and then gone to uh, where he ultimately took his own life and could have been there since. One of the other things we learned from the Pennsylvania manhunt was how hard it is when you're looking for the woods um, to spot a person dead or alive. Yeah, and so do we have any indication on the timing of when they found him? So this was this evening... um, nine o'clock or slightly earlier than that. Um, oh, so just recently. Yeah, no, this was, this was, um, uh, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm off a little bit. This was this evening within the last hour um, or so. Um, I've been here too long today. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been doing a lot of reporting, John Miller. I, I want you to stand with me because I want you to continue to, to fill this out. But I do want to go to someone who this is incredibly personal for right now, a, a survivor of this shooting, Tammy Azalin and her daughter, Tony, who is 10 years old. They were at Just In Time Recreation, the bowling alley, separated as this shooting began, and her cousin Trisha was killed in the shooting. Tammy, I'm so glad that, that you're here with me tonight. I wanted to talk to you just about what your experience was. But what's your reaction to this, this breaking news that we have confirmed the suspected shooter has been found dead? Um. It really, it's relieving so that the community itself can definitely move on without the fear of him out there. Um, But it's also sad because we have so many answers, so many questions left unanswered. Um, But I know it does give my daughter some peace to know that he's been caught because that was a fear of hers, that he's still out there. I mean, she's just 10 years old. I, I... I can tell this is really uh, difficult for you. 
Yeah, it caught me off guard just now. I'm sorry that we're breaking the news to you to in feel this way. this way. It's okay. It's okay. I mean, we have to deal with it at some point for sure. Um, but yeah, it's sad. I mean, all around the whole thing is sad. We've lost the, his family's loss. It's, it's just unnatural for sure. It's amazing to me to hear you say that to yeah. me, to, to think of his family as well in a time like this. I know we, we had heard yeah. from his, some of his family members, his relatives, who said they never suspected this. They didn't expect this. It just, it's, it's an amazing moment oh, of humanity yeah. that you just thought of them just now. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I've often thought in the last few days, I, even my daughter has said, yeah, I'd like to ask him why. You know, why did he pick where he picked? And did he know that there would be children there? You know, it's just those why questions that unfortunately are left unanswered and we'll probably never have those answers to. And, you know, and I, I mean, as much as we're hurting, I'm sure they're hurting too. So it's, um, it's a fact of life. I mean, I don't have hate in my heart for sure. Uh, it's just so much to deal with right now that it's definitely, it caught me off guard for sure. It's completely understandable. I'm sure in this moment you're thinking, I mean, your, your cousin Trisha was there that night. She didn't survive. Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. when you think of that question, why she's at the top of your, of your mind. Yeah. Yeah. She's very much on the top of my mind, as well as the dear ones that we lost. Um, when there was the press conference this afternoon, and they confirmed everybody. So it answered all the questions that I had of people that I had questions about whether or not, what their status was. And um, when I watched that live, it was um, unsettling. And... Uh, hard because I know what everybody's going through. I know what my family's going through. And um, it's just not an easy moment for sure. I can't imagine what it was like to, to see that press conference where they had the photos of all of the victims behind them and to see not only your, yeah. your cousin, but I also see, your, yeah, like you see my cousin your neighbors, your the loved ones. Yeah. Um, the ones that we've grown close to in the bowling league, you know, the ones that have always loved my daughter as their own, you know, and Trisha always did the same thing too. Everybody in that community did. They have always, ex it's just an extended family there. Um, you know, it's, we may not necessarily all be blood related, but it felt that way. And, um, we definitely lost a lot for sure. <laughs> And uh, it's it's hitting me right now, for sure, how much we've lost. And uh, that it's basically at a point now where we can start the healing process and, and move forward from this and uh, try to get some resolutions and try to get our kids back in a normal routine and make sure that they're okay to do so. Do you think you can ever go back to that normal routine? I want to think I can. I think it's important too. 
um, it's going to be difficult, but I think with some help, we can definitely get to a point where we can. I think it's important to teach my daughter that this is a moment in time and it's hard, but we can overcome and we can move forward. And, um, and I think it's important for our community to be able to do that as well and to move forward. It's not about forgetting, but it's about living in honor of those that we lost. How's Tony doing? I mean, she's, I see her sitting next to you. She's just 10 years old. She's doing okay. I mean, would you like to tell her how you're doing? No, it's okay. It's understandable. No, she's doing pretty good. She's, um, I've been watching her over the last couple of days processing this and it's, um, it's hard as a parent to, to know what to say, but I feel comfortable with the relationship I have with her that we've always had an open line of communication and I've always treated her not necessarily as an equal, but equal enough that she had, deserves the right to know certain things and to be honest with her. And um, so when, he, when she asked me those tough questions, I picked the right moment that it's appropriate to talk to her about it. And, um, but I've also allowed her to still continue to try to be a kid. You know, today she wanted to play with her friends and I'm like, yes, absolutely. Go play with your friends. What I keep thinking about, and that's a conversation you should never have to have with your 10 year old daughter, but I mean, on the position that you're in is one that so many American families have been have been put in, where their lives have been forever changed by by gun violence, by a shooting like this one. Yeah, and I've thought about that. That was one of my one of my first thoughts was, is this real? Is this am I essentially become a statistic? You know, I. Never thought that would ever be possible. I mean, nobody ever, obviously, in the situation like this thinks it's ever possible. But when it happens, it's still, I'm still processing it myself and still trying to get to a point that I can try to learn to accept that, yes, it is real. Yes, it did happen. And it's going to take me some time because I, I go in and out of the emotions and thinking, no, it didn't really happen. It didn't really happen. And then I'm constantly reminded it did. So, yeah, it's difficult. Tammy, I just, I want to say thank you for uh, for coming on, for being able to to speak about what you and Tony have been through this week. I'm, I'm so touched by what you said about Robert Card's family as well. And I know our audience is too. And your compassion is amazing in this moment. And, um, I just want to thank you for coming on and that we're all thinking of you and your family and remembering Trisha. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity for wanting to hear and learn. Unfortunately, it's, it's a lot of learning and it's, it's all too common. Thank you so much, Tammy. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. And of course, we're thinking of Tammy and her family. We're thinking of all of the families of the 18 victims of these shootings. We'll be back in just a moment. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. 
So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Back to our major breaking news tonight. The manhunt in Maine has now ended. Multiple sources telling CNN that the suspect in Wednesday's mass shootings, Robert Card, has been found dead from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. We are awaiting a news conference very soon from the authorities as we wait on those and those official confirmations from the authorities. I want to bring in the former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who is here with us. Uh, Andrew, just a few hours ago, what we were hearing at that press conference at 5 p.m. was that they had no major leads, no real significant uh, sightings of this of this suspected shooter. I mean, it shows you how quickly all of this can change. It really does, Caitlin. These, these manhunts, as we've seen even over the last couple of months with the few that we've tracked, um, you really never know where they're going to go. Um, and, you know, a few uh, in September with the uh, uh, Cavalcanti uh, manhunt in Pennsylvania, we had sightings of the of uh, of uh, the escapee on a very regular basis. A couple of times a day, he was tripping cameras out in the out in a park near the near the prison where he escaped, uh, showing up at people's houses, stealing things from garages. This one was very different. There hasn't been a trace of him uh, since the shootings on Wednesday night, um, which you know raises all sorts of questions in investigators' heads. Uh, quite frankly, the resolution here is a common one. Um, it's very common that mass shooters end up taking their own lives. Um, and despite that, investigators have to think for the worst case scenario. So when you haven't seen this, any, any sightings of this person in 12 hours, 24 hours, 36, 48 hours, you really begin to get, get concerned that he's gone beyond the scope of your search, uh, which complicates things enormously. But, but quite frankly, as sad and tragic as this whole, uh, whole episode is, this resolution is a relief. Um, it's a relief for the many men and women who are out there in the woods, in the river, on the roads, going house to house, responding to calls, and, and concerned that any time they may have interacted with him, had there been a confrontation with law enforcement before this thing was resolved, you know, there's really no limits to how lethal and devastating it could have been. Um, so this is in many ways um, uh, a sigh of relief probably can be heard throughout this community. Yeah. I mean, many of them were still on lockdown as of this hour. I mean, it may still be as we're waiting to hear from the authorities here. As you are going to listen in on this press conference, obviously now that they have found him, they can answer more questions. I think before, obviously, they wanted to protect the investigation. What are you going to be listening for in just a moment? Yeah, well, they've been very protective of the investigation so far. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm hoping that they'll be a little freer with information than they've been uh, so thus far. And there's really no reason not to be. There's no, there's no prosecutions hanging in the balance here. Um, so they should be able to share with us some details about how they discovered where he was located. Was it just a simple grid search in an area of woods that they had identified as a possible location? Um, or was there some lead that drew them to that point? 
I'd really be interested in hearing more details about the note that he left, presumably for his family members and whether that was involved. And then, of course, there's a lot of good questions to be raised about the weapons that he had, you know, certainly the weapon that he used during the shooting, but other weapons that he may have had at his home and how he acquired those and whether there may have been any violations of law involved. Yeah, John Miller saying it's typically a long gun used for for shooting large animals. Uh, Andrew McCabe, stand by because we'll get back to you in just a moment. CNN's Shimon Prokupes was in this area today near where the suspect may have been found. We're waiting for official confirmation. Shimon, what are you learning tonight? Yeah, so, Caitlin, this area where uh, we believe he was found near this recycling uh, center area is actually a location that uh, we believe police were at yesterday searching. Um, we were, we've been in Lisbon for the past uh, few days since this happened, arriving uh, the day after early in the morning, and police were out there searching. But something uh, had occurred yesterday, and we believe it's around the time that uh, officials had been searching uh, the suspect's home. Something was discovered in that home. We now know it's a uh, some kind of a note, perhaps, uh, that led them to this recycling center yesterday. We know uh, from the officials that we were talking to on the ground in Lisbon, there was a building in this one particular area. It was around three o'clock. We were actually doing a live shot uh, just in this area. And there was a lot of behind us. We tried to go up the street. Uh, the police would not allow us. And what we were told by someone on the ground, they had some information. Uh, this person was not specific. Uh, but said there was something going on in the area. And we believe uh, this is where they found the body uh, today, perhaps, uh, when we're being told uh, that police found him. Uh, so we were there yesterday. We were in this area. It, it, we believe this is an area that police knew about, that they had searched previously. But I think what has happened today from what we had seen on the ground, a lot more resources came in. Uh, and they were doing deeper searches. We saw officers today actually in the woods searching. We had not seen that before today. Uh, and so I'm wondering, and I'm thinking that perhaps they went a little deeper, uh, and that is when they found uh, the body. You know, this is about, you know, several minutes uh, from the that boat latch, that boat area uh, where they found the car. So it is within walking distance. It's a few minutes in the car. So it, it would be within walking distance of, of where uh, that boat latches, if that is the location. That's what we believe the location is. Uh, and also tells you that he's familiar. He was very familiar uh, with this area. So more planning, perhaps. Uh, but we'll have to hear from officials exactly what happened. I mean, they, they knew about this location. And today, the only thing I, I can say is, you know, there was an intensity to the search uh, that we had not seen previously. And that is what likely led, and, and it's very apparent that that is what likely led to this discovery. Yeah, and we are waiting to get those answers from the authorities that are going to come out any moment now. Shimon Prokupes, thank you. We'll check back in with you. Sure. We will be back in just a moment as we are waiting to hear from these authorities now that we have confirmed the suspected shooter in Maine has been found dead. More right after this. Andrew Scoggin County Sheriff in Maine has now confirmed in a Facebook post that the suspected shooter there, Robert Card, has been found dead. I want to bring in CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller here with me, who first broke this reporting.
John, I mean, obviously there's a lot of questions for these officials who are coming up, but just the fact that they found him is a huge relief to this community, but still a lot of questions about his background, about the profile that these authorities are going to want to learn. There are. And, you know, a lot of these questions that you're framing right here, um, they have put off, and logically so, on the idea that we'll get to those questions and we'll do it in due time. But right now our focus is finding him. And, you know, we have a community that's on lockdown. So this essentially um, opens the door for them to now look um, backwards in this incident about what were the threats and drivers that drove him to this shooting? Um, what were the opportunities, if any, that might have been missed that they would look at to say, um, what can we learn from this? But on top of that, you have a, a small city, Lewiston, and the surrounding communities that are part of that area that are facing simultaneous death of 18 people, which means 18 funerals and wakes that have to be carried out um, in funeral homes around that area in fairly rapid succession. And the big game changer here is that as they were going into this morning, wondering how long he would be at large, it was how do we secure 18 funerals and how long will it take to get through them and how will we deal with people, even if we take them off lockdown, which they did today, um, who said, we know he's still out there. We don't feel safe, especially at gatherings that have something to do with these killings, like those, those services in churches, in funeral homes, um, and it wakes. So that weight has been lifted, which will allow people to start grieving um, with sadness, but without fear. Yeah, which uh, it's just a, a double you know, insult to them. They were already dealing with a sudden loss, a tragic loss, a senseless loss. And on top of that, also living in fear for over 48 hours now. We also have uh, former Washington, D.C. police chief and, of course, former Philadelphia police commissioner Charles Ramsey here with me. Chief Ramsey, what's your reaction to this breaking news tonight? Well, it's a huge relief to the residents, to the families of the victims, to all the police officers, uh, to everyone. Uh, that this is finally over. Uh, it ended the way many of these things end uh, with the death of the um, uh, perpetrator. Um, but it's just a huge relief. And uh, it's finally over. You know, when they had the press conference earlier, they were lifting the, you know, uh, shelter in place, which is something they had to do, no question about it. But that just adds another level that you have to be concerned about from a policing standpoint uh, when people are back out uh, and about. So this is just something that, I mean, it's, it's a tragedy all the way around, but uh, thank God it's over. Um, I think that we'll learn a lot more at this press conference coming up at 10 o'clock. And a lot of the questions that we couldn't have answered before, hopefully will be answered uh, during this press conference. Yeah, we're seeing the room right now. They're in Lewiston, Maine. Obviously, we're waiting for officials to come out. And Chief Ramsey, they have not been very forthcoming in these press conferences. The one earlier, it was it was pretty brief. They said, we'll keep you updated, but they didn't want to share a lot for obvious reasons, I think understandable reasons. How much more do you think that they'll be prepared to share now or how much of this investigation is still going to go on into this suspect's background? 
Well, there'll be a lot more being done in terms of the investigation into the background of the individual processing the scene, all the things that have to be done. They'll have to wrap it up, but they'll continue on. But, um, you know, things like what was actually in the note, for an example, uh, from what we've been hearing from John's uh, reporting, there was a lot of information that would lead one to believe that he was suicidal, that perhaps you know, he recognized that he would either take his own life or his life would be taken in a shootout with police or what have you. Uh, so we'll probably learn more about that, uh, certainly more about the weapon, more about the circumstances that led to his body being found. Was that a tip that they just happened to find him as they were doing one of their grid searches? You know, what led him to that location? So those are the kinds of things that I think we'll find out uh, in a few minutes. Yeah. And John Miller, I mean, the questions that I still have, especially after hearing Tammy there in just such a heartbreaking moment as she learned this news and having this moment of empathy, though, are about the warning signs that were there and what you were reporting 10 days before that incident where he said he was hearing voices and wanted to harm people. He had just bought a gun and how it slipped two guns and how it slipped through, uh, I mean, anyone's notice. I mean, this is. Uh, a cycle of discussion that we keep going through after each one of these mass shooting incidents where we where we look backwards and we can see the signs clearly um, and the struggle we have is a we have too many of these and too often and b um, while they're clear looking backwards so often when they're right in front of people they don't know the seriousness and i mean but we see it time and time again I mean, you saw it in Nashville. You've seen it in other shootings where those signs were there. I mean, what kind of questions are there for the... He was serving in... He's an Army reservist. He was... It was other National Guards, his superiors there that had heard him saying he wanted to to harm other soldiers. I mean, what kind of questions did they have going forward to face? So, Caitlin, it really boils down, if we we look at it there, is uh, what did the National Guard in New York, where they intervened with him in that incident... What opportunity did they have to pass that on to authorities in Maine, where he lived, where he was going back to, where he served with other soldiers, and where? what action did they take or not take? What did they miss? Yeah, a lot of big questions that remain. John Miller, thank you for your reporting and your perspective on this. Thanks, we'll continue Caitlin. watching as we are waiting any moment now for the authorities in Lewiston, Maine, to hold a press conference after we have gotten confirmation from a sheriff in the area that the suspected shooter there has been found dead. More answers to come, hopefully. Our special coverage of this breaking news event continues right now with Abby Phillip. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.